Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Professor Michelle Wilde Anderson, who is the author of The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here and that we get to talk about your book and take a peek behind the scenes with it. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Well, I'm at work. I'm a writer and a teacher. That's how I think about my job. Um, And at home, I'm a mother and a wife and a daughter and a friend as often as humanly possible within the constraints of all those other roles. One of the things I like to ask guests, because this channel is called The Academic Life, is if they'll take us back and give us a a bit of an understanding of their own academic journey. How did you decide your course of study? How did you get from A to B? Oh, wow. All the way back. Well, I would say that this this work that I do now is rooted in... um, I'm sure we could go all the way back into my childhood, but I'll just go into my young adulthood. My first job right out of college, I was a grant writer for an incredible youth program that was doing hand-to-hand anti-poverty work in Connecticut's poorest cities. And we ran after school and summer programming for kids who wouldn't be able to afford that kind of support um, out of pocket in their families. Um, and, uh, and soon after I left, we used to be in five cities when I was there, we were in five cities and pretty shortly after I left the, there was a big wave of federal tax credits that went into effect, um, that filtered down to the state of Connecticut, which filtered down to all of its programs for youth and families. And with horror and great sadness, I watched the program retreat to being only based in New Haven and lose its programs in Bridgeport and Waterbury and Hartford and New London, which were incredibly poor cities that really needed this kind of support in their highly segregated public housing developments. Um, And that experience has never really left me. And I think for um, this book is rooted in the problem of places that can't sustain that kind of support system based on their own tax base. That was really the fundamental difference between a city like Bridgeport and a city like New Haven. Um, It didn't have a heterogeneous enough tax base inside to support that kind of urgent anti-poverty work. And for listeners in other parts of the world, New Haven is where Yale University is located. And I went there a few times to to conduct research at at one of their uh, library archives. And as someone who had just looked up pictures and done research about, you know, planning the research trip, the disparity between Yale and its campus and some parts of New Haven can't be overstated. That's so true. And that's exactly the character of New Haven is that it has this giant 
permanent anchor institution. That's the term of art that is often used in urban policy for big organizations that can't move, like hospitals and universities that are really rooted in a place. And Yale, of course, has this giant campus and it's deeply rooted in New Haven. New Haven, apart from Yale, has a lot in common with post-industrial Connecticut. Um, Connecticut was a big industrial engine of, of the early 20th century and had tons of manufacturing and deep um, prevailing levels of racial segregation in its public housing that grew up um, toward the mid-century period. And the history of racial and socioeconomic isolation in those neighborhoods combined with intense deindustrialization, very, very concentrated job losses in those communities meant that all of Connecticut's older cities really suffered and were left with these um, giant zones of concentrated racially segregated poverty. And again, New Haven is one of those cities, but it had Yale there and, and Yale not only creates its own um, source of revenue and social tissue, kind of networking it to deeper pockets in the outside world. But also Yale keeps New Haven connected to its suburbs so that there's a sort of flow of information and philanthropic dollars and donors and everything that can support programs for kids in New Haven. And these other cities just didn't have that kind of um, social network that sort of allows them to raise funds privately to support kids in in the central cities. You talk a bit about that job in the back matter of the book. Um, I believe that program was called LEAP, and a number of the people who worked there came through the AmeriCorps program. And you said that it was there that you first experienced disinvestment, even though you didn't yet know the word disinvestment. Right. That's amazing that you read that. And yes, that's exactly right. This word disinvestment I've thought about so much in recent years because it's a kind of jargon word and people don't, um, you know, I think it's kind of empty of, of obvious meaning in a way. And it took me a long time to really sit with what that actually meant. Um but I think that actually back in those leap years, sort of right at the um, you know early 2000s, um, I was sitting with the most important dimension of disinvestment, which is di- disinvestment in people. So a lot of times in urban policy, we talk about disinvestment in communities, right? Like their downtowns are really shabby, or they haven't really rebuilt their waterfront, or they have all this brownfield land that is, you know, maybe contaminated, underutilized, ugly, filled with trash, whatever it is. We think about disinvestment in terms of the the physical environment of a place and just the um, failure to really build out um, a sort of physical environment that's attractive to people and businesses. Um, But what I was seeing back in Leap and what I really have sat with and written about in this book now is disinvestment in people, in their basic physical safety, in the stability of their housing, in their access to youth development, in the opportunities for adult education. Like how do we, you know, I think we have had several generations of disinvestment in in people in the kind of very poor places 
I have been working on ever since. Um, and that shows up in intergenerational poverty, in low college attainment rates, and in violence. And all of those um, problems are really at the heart of this book and the amazing activism that I write about in it. You mentioned that you had the LEAP job right after college. Was there was there a point when you decided you wanted to go to grad school and was it inspired by this job or had you known when you went to college that you would want to go on for grad education? Uh, back at, um, in those days, um, I was really preoccupied with the racial history of American public housing. I really, to this day, I remain a housing person and a housing scholar. It's a huge part of what I do. But back then, housing was really the thing that was overwhelmingly on my mind. I was sort of um, uh, just brokenhearted by the physical separation of the public housing developments in Connecticut and the kind of stigma that went against the people and neighborhoods um, with this housing. And um, so I guess back then that the part of that is that sort of interest in housing and the sort of architectural ideas and, and social policy ideas behind stacking this much concentrated poverty in specific neighborhoods um, were at the foreground for me. Um, I went to urban planning school first because I think I thought that urban policy was where we worked on those kinds of issues. Um, and I did lots on affordable housing at urban policy school. But, um, but I eventually went to law school because I'm, I think before I'm a scholar, I've always wanted to be an advocate and I wanted to be a lawyer. And I really went to law school intending to be a poverty lawyer. And in some ways, that's what I still am. I describe myself as the outset as a writer and a teacher, but if I had to pick a third category to describe my professional identity, it is very much as a lawyer. So are you a, do you have a private law practice as well? I don't have a private law practice in the sense of sort of hanging a shingle, as we say in the profession, to have my own business, but I do tons of pro bono legal work and um, and just working in a law school as I do, we are involved in legal matters in all kinds of ways. And I run a kind of quasi-clinical program at Stanford within the law school to support um, social justice lawyering by local governments in Santa Clara County. So when did the fight to save the town reimagining discarded America start to come about as a book form? Yeah, well, so, I mean, right before the Great Recession, I was, I'm a lifetime Californian other than 10 years away from the state. Um, And uh, at the center of California, as some of your listeners know, is a giant agricultural region that is one of the poorest regions in the United States, sometimes the poorest region in the United States. And as a um, lifetime Californian, I've done a lot of work and really been drawn to this incredible agricultural breadbasket that is an engine for our state's economy and an engine for world food production, um, but also just this place of um, intense exposure to 
real environmental problems, whether they're um, high rates of asthma, lack of access to clean water, intense food desert, nutritional deprivation in spite of this food production function of the Central Valley. Um, And uh, in any event, I began my work as a scholar, sort of as I transitioned into doing research, I began my work focused on the San Joaquin Valley in California and other rural areas in the country, especially in the American South, that have incredibly weak governments. So they combine intense levels of concentrated poverty with really weak local governments that don't do that much for their people. Um, And when you concentrate on weak environments in rural contexts, um, a lot, I ended up being like kind of the sewage professor, which doesn't sound very attractive, but, um, but the desperate need for basic sewage facilities and of course, crisis levels of access problems to clean water um, really were at the center of that kind of rural, weak government agenda. Anyway, the Great Recession comes along and just slams governments nationwide. And as some of your uh, listeners may know, the Great Recession was the biggest wave of local government fiscal collapse um, since the Great Depression. So we had this giant wave of local governments going broke, and a lot of them were really big cities, um, including Stockton, California, which is in this fertile interior of California, and um, and Detroit, Michigan, most famously among these bankruptcies. Um, And so during the recession, I started to realize that we had really weak local governments in big cities, too, and that this whole project is rooted in the problem of places, whether urban or rural, places that are incredibly poor, but also broke. Their governments don't have enough money to provide basic services. And you tell us that in the book, you say all of these discarded places are routinely trashed by outsiders for their poverty and their politics. Mostly, their governments are just broke. Um, that is so important to me. The um, these kinds of places get portrayed as dying or desperate, as though there's kind of bullets flying all over the place, and they have crooked leaders who are stealing money from the people, and they end up on various kind of clickbait blogs and listings and magazine um, articles under names like the most miserable places to live. Um, and uh, and so they're deeply stigmatized. And I think this is part of the vicious cycle that they get stuck in, is that they're really poor. Their governments are in some state of crisis or at least flatlining. They're deeply stigmatized by outsiders. And then outsiders start to tell these stories of kind of naturalized decline, like you can't save them or it would be throwing good money after bad to try to intervene. Um And instead, I think you look at the decisions, the active decisions that are being made behind the scenes to disinvest in these kinds of places, and you realize this is not natural at all. These are constant public policy choices that we are making um, every single day. And uh, and so these the this process of more vicious decline becomes um, 
uh, this dynamic that that somebody has got to turn around. And the the places that I chose for this book are places that are sort of willfully ignoring and rejecting these pathologizing stories and really turning a larger social network toward progress. And you say in the book that that was really important to you, specifically the title, that the working title of the project, that it's the fight to save the town, uh, was part of why people trusted you, but it was also the guiding uh, rubric of how you were going to do this, because your criteria was towns that are poor, broke, and progressing. And with that, you chose four specific locations. Can you tell us those four locations and more specifically why those fit your criteria? Yeah, well, um, I will introduce the four in a second with great love for them. Um, But I'll just reflect back that it was so important to me, just as you said, to call this the fight to save the town and think of this as a project around progress and not just a problem-centered book. Um, the because of the history of pathologizing these kinds of communities, I think it. Uh, I could have. I felt that I could do more harm than good by just sitting with their challenges, and I also felt like so many of these challenges have been brewing and accumulating and growing literally for 40 years. And so the idea that I would come along at you know this late date and tell people what the problems were seemed pretty ridiculous because on the ground, advocates don't need more recitation of their challenges. They're very aware of that. And so instead, I felt like the contribution I could make would be to sort of listen curate and lift the stories of people who are just progressing against those challenges anyway and help to link them to one another and help them to, um, you know, help to celebrate this good work for the sake of others who are out there fighting this fight. One other brief comment about the challenge, about the the title, um, Fight to Save the Town was a title I became very attached to and at some level I still love. On the other hand, I hate the word save. And um, there's a kind of, um, I don't know, I just I hate the word save. I feel very, from the beginning, I felt very ambivalent about using that kind of word. Um, I don't believe that you just sort of rescue a community. I don't even know what that would look like. I certainly don't mean save in a religious sense. And I don't believe that individual actors sort of put on red capes and, you know, act as heroes um, in single generations. Um, But nonetheless, I kept the title in part, if I'm honest, because I could never come up with a better verb (laughs) to capture the sort of energy and momentum that these extraordinary activists have. Um, But also um, because uh, at some level, it is such an act of devotion. The kind of people I write about in the book are so devoted and And I don't know, and at some level, that word was ultimately true to that kind of love they have for the communities. Um, But you asked about the four places. So um, so there, uh, I wrote about Stockton, California, about a city of about 300,000, really a giant city for an agricultural region. So this kind of interesting combination of urban and rural, major center of food manufacturing, canneries, food production, warehousing, transportation, really to sort of deliver this giant 
breadbasket to um, to the Bay Area, to California, to the country, and then to the world. Um, so I wrote about Stockton. I wrote about Detroit, um, which almost needs no introduction, um, except to say that I think it's so important that we think of Detroit as our kind of imaginary capital or symbolic capital of the American middle class. But I've come to think of Detroit as our national capital of modern inequality. Um, and then Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a small mill town, predominantly Latino mill town in uh, Massachusetts that has been heavily stigmatized for the opioid crisis, but is this extraordinary and very resilient a town with an iconic American history. And then Josephine County, Oregon, which is a deeply Western capital W county um, in Southern Oregon that relied for, has relied all across its history in these giant boom bust cycles on natural resources, first gold and then hops. And then in the modern era, giant old growth timber. Um, so it, Josephine was right in the crosshairs of the spotted owl meltdown politically um, and many other controversies over environmental law. Um, so these places run from super red, like Josephine County, politically, I mean, um, uh, super red to super blue at the, at the Detroit end. Um, Stockton is uh, is a purple city that sort of swings um, more recently between blue and red. Um, and, uh, and I would describe Lawrence as a blue city that has kind of purple curious uh, strands to it in its most recent um, politics. So they're politically really different from each other. They're racially super different from each other. Stockton is the most diverse city in the United States. If we really cared about and prized diversity, cities like Stockton or Richmond, California, or others would be really at the center of our public debate to try to understand that kind of global diversity. Um, Detroit is majority black still, um, but diversifying faster than any other city in the country. Um, uh, Lawrence, as I mentioned, is majority Latino, um, and uh, and Josephine is uh, is overwhelmingly white. Um, so they were really different from each other, and that was important to me to just get to sit with these places that are all dealing with similar challenges at some root level and also genuinely different from each other. It seems like part of the mission of this book is to present these as case studies. These are not the four worst cities or counties in America. These are not the only places that are broke, poor, and progressing, but these are places we can take as case studies and learn so much about how they got here and why so many things are against them changing that. Were there other places that you considered? How did you narrow down just these four? Because it seems like there would have been a number of competing candidates. Yeah, that's the way you described it is exactly right. Um, I, you know, the academics listening to your podcast will, um, will appreciate I lived in fear of any kind of claim that would say these four places are representative. Um, I never have tried to make that claim. I push against any kind of reading of the book that way. Um, instead, I wanted to just sit with four places on their own terms within their own social networks and their own history um, and really allow them to sort of just stand for themselves. 
Having said that, of course, as a person who cares about a larger phenomenon of places that are poor and broke, I sat with these four places deliberately to better understand the kinds of challenges that face communities in that category. And so, um, so just as you say, they're, they're case studies. I think they're exceptionally revealing of these kinds of problems. Um, and uh, and so, um, yeah, they're important to me in terms of a path to understanding this larger problem. But also, just like you say, there are many other places I could have chosen. Um, I the book offers very specific criteria for what it means, what this pro- the the nature of the poverty that I'm writing about in this book, which is I call border to border poverty, where there's very concentrated poverty, like intense pockets of very concentrated poverty, but also city wide or countywide, the entire median income is very low. And state by state, you can find in some cases, a dozen places that meet that criteria. And in some cases, uh, hundreds that meet that criteria. Um, So this is a national problem, there would have been zillions of candidates on that for that um, element. Um, There are also, although I say zillions offhandedly, because the truth is I don't have a finite exact number. Um, I'm actually embarking on a larger national research project to get that number. It's surprisingly hard to figure out at the 50 state level. But anyway, um, many candidates at that level, many places that have gone uh, formally, legally speaking, have gone broke and have entered legal proceedings for being insolvent. So many candidates. And so in that sense, again, this book can't be representative because I did not survey all of those places or really sit deeply with uh, what, you know, with the overall characteristics or demographics of that problem. As I said, that's kind of next up in my work. Um, uh, But I just started uh, doing field research in what began as a group of seven of them. And in total, I probably visited and did interviews in 12 of them. Um, But I narrowed down for the book's purposes to a group of seven and and was uh, really immersed in and moved by work in all of those places. Um, But then because ultimately this is a trade press book meant for a non-academic audience, my editor had the general advice. He said, you can't put up and take down the stage set seven times. He said, your readers just won't be able to bear that much kind of, um, you know, that many separate acts to this larger book. Um, And he was definitely right from the reader point of view. Um, It turns out he was right from the writer point of view too, because each of these places took me so long that if I'd had to prolong this book to seven, um, we'd be having this conversation three years from now. Um, So, so I, uh, so I took his advice and, um, And the four ultimately shook out the way they did because the progress was so visible. The advocates for it were so articulate and moving about where they were going, where they had been, and why. Um, And I would just say that these four places, they just, because of the people there, they just 
blossomed to me. They were open to me. They let me in. They shared their stories with me so generously. Um, And as a practical matter, in order to write a book like this, I had to have people like that. I had to have people that sort of gave me the benefit of the doubt and let me in. You tell us in the book that some of these places, no one had come with interest about how they lived for good or for bad. Um, you do say that all four of the ones that you chose have been humiliated by bad press, uh, but a lot of them had not had much press at all, and that Detroit was the exception, that the people there knew to shut the door in your face. They, they dealt with people many times, and it was really your different approach to the work that helped them decide whether or not they wanted to open up and for a number of people to share their stories with you. Can you talk about the approach that you took and how that took time to build trust and get those stories to be shared with you? Yeah, well, just like you say, um, I would put Detroit in a separate category from the other three. In, In the case of Josephine Stockton and Lawrence, they really only they really only attracted press when there was bad news. So they lived in this state of invisibility until there was some kind of problem that would bring in reporters. And in some cases, that's kind of run of the mill, bad daily press, as in Lawrence's case, um, from its own suburbs or from Boston, you know, major um, news outlets. Um, In Stockton's case, they got international bad press when they went through a bankruptcy and lots of reporters from all over the world came kind of into the city at a moment of terrible crisis and really, um, you know, hypothesized about all the dumb mistakes that Stockton had made to bring itself to that juncture of insolvency. And the reporting in that period, um, some of it was thoughtful and tried to do the right thing, but in the most, you know, in, in the main was incredibly stigmatizing and patronizing um, and really misunderstood the larger dynamics that Stockton had been buckling under for decades. So, Um, So, yeah. So, you know, invisible except when um, insulted. That was kind of the experience. And so in that in those three cases to show up in town physically, being present as a real person who cared about good work in town and was asking about good work made me just different. Like that just automatically set me apart from many other people who were, um, you know, asking questions. Um, and, uh, and so, like I said, you know, those three places just were so generous and open, um, and really quite loving in a way, you know, just grateful to have somebody who seemed to care about progressing on these problems and not just, um, you know, not just further weakening the social movement's chance to attract funding and, and, um, partners and so forth. Detroit is different from all of that because Detroit has been put under so many microscopes for so long. And those microscopes have often been, uh, deeply racialized. So Detroit, there is, there has been such a pattern of storytelling about Detroit's decline that really, um, uh, 
blames, I think that's the only word for it, blames Black Detroit for the city's decline in ways that let the larger racial history of Detroit off the hook for driving it into the ground um, and really fail that story that um, that Black Detroit is to blame for its decline really fails to understand the way that Detroit is um, uh, wrapped up in larger patterns of exploitation and um, and money making sort of from outsiders. And it always has been. Detroit has generated a lot of wealth for outsiders across that period of of its decline. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, as I said in the author's note at the end, I think people in Detroit deserved, you know, they had the right to slam the door in my face and they didn't. Um, in general, they were more cautious and reserved to be sure. And just, it's a much bigger city. So people are just busy and there's so much going on all the time. Um, but uh, so it was harder in Detroit, but there too, I mean, some of my visits there, I just, um, it was just this sense that the city kind of opened and let me in um, simply because I wasn't there to blame everybody and talk about how terrible things were. Um, you know, if you show up and you ask people about their their hard work and not about, you know, their failures, they're, you know, interested to talk to you. And the truth is there's a lot of professionals in the country, whether they're local government employees or they're social workers or they're teachers or whatever, who don't get enough of a chance to actually reflect on their work. Like, why do I do what I do? What difference does it make? Who am I connected to? Who do I feel is working at this problem alongside me? Like people want to have those conversations. Um, so the truth is sometimes people would spend hours with me just because I think they, it was gratifying to them to just have a listener. Even if I'd never published this book, I think sometimes I felt like there was a sort of public service just sitting there in town and visibly appreciating the work that was going on there. You tell us in the book that you truly believe that writing has a role to play in social change. And in the author's note, you you show us how you took that to another level that often academics don't. We give our work to other academics to peer review, to give us feedback, to tell us if we've made some mistakes. You gave the work back to the people that you interviewed and asked them to read things and help you clarify it because it was really important to you that they retained ownership of their stories. Can you talk about that approach to creating your work? Yeah, I did share um, sometimes uh, single quotes, if that was where a person was going to make an appearance in a book, sometimes passages, sometimes whole chapters um, with the vast majority of people who appear by name in the book. Um, and that was really important to me because uh, I, I teach environmental justice uh, as a lawyer. And one of the um, central principles of environmental justice lawyering is that people speak for themselves. They own their own stories. Um, and uh, and there should be a, um, a sense of control over the academic process and over writers um, 
that tries to correct for the terrible dark history of academics parachuting in, especially to very poor places, sort of collecting their stories, printing them back out somewhere else to some kind of professional or, you know, personal rewards um, and, uh, you know, and never sort of showing face in town again. And I, I didn't want to be part of that tradition in academia. I wanted people to clear their own stories and really think about it. And in no case did anybody ever try to correct my voice or my opinions. I mean, people were so, um, thoughtful about it, but we caught, I caught some factual mistakes that had come up in interviews. I was able to anonymize some people who, when they saw it in print, really weren't comfortable with some of their backstory. Um, I was able to, uh, one, one sheriff who read the whole chapter in Josephine County sent me a, a, a word document, the word document back of the whole chapter with all kinds of comment bubbles that were just like little mini op-eds from his point of view. It was one of the most magnificent experiences I had in this whole writing process. It was just like a conversation between me and him in which he disagreed with me about things. He gave me more nuance that I was missing or he added details or whatever. And the truth is that that version that he sent me didn't change the text all that much. And he wasn't asking for it to. It was just him engaging with it as a living document that represented his work and his community. Um, and so I think for both of us, that was an incredibly meaningful experience. So I loved those moments in the reporting. It was very stressful to add that on to an already exhausting and very time pressured process at the end. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of time. I never could have done a book like this. It, all kinds of phases of this book I never could have done if I hadn't been tenured. The reality is that this kind of project takes a lot longer and it wore me out very profoundly in ways that just printing it straight out, you know, without that larger backend communications process would have been, um, you know, faster and, and simpler. You thank librarians and um, research assistants who who helped, but you've alluded to some of the other aspects of tenure that helped create a project like this. Um, were there funding streams that help? You, you mentioned that you did 250 interviews in person from 2016 to 2020. I'm thinking of grad students designing projects and um, adjunct faculty designing projects. Something this long and that involves this much travel requires, as you say, some of the um, safety nets that tenured professors have. Are you comfortable sharing a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, so again, I'm at a law school and we don't have labs and, you know, we don't have kind of teams the way that a sociologist might, or a, a, you know, a researcher who's doing intensive qualitative work like this. Um, so what, uh, the, what this project really costed me was was time. It cost because the truth is that I did all the reporting myself and I um, did the travel on my own. Um, the budget for it was relatively modest at the end of the day. Um, I got a $30,000 grant from the UPS endowment fund um, that helped to fund the travel and a lot of the undergraduate time that was necessary to do um, these 
giant several thousand page transcription decks that I developed from the interviews. So I did need undergraduate time. I needed um, software related to those transcriptions and, you know, modest travel budgets. Um, but, um, but mostly I just needed the trust and um, sort of moral support of my department to let me stop the academic um, productivity um you know, chain. So I, you know, I, I needed these years to stop producing in my field law review articles um, that uh, that um, you know really take a lot of time. I needed to use my summers for this. I never took time off of teaching, so I was always bound to the classroom, and I couldn't do kind of immersive year-long field research the way that. Um, again, that academics in other fields might be able to do. Um, but that was important to the intellectual development of the project because I got to teach pieces of this in my classroom um, over the years in ways that um, really taught me so much. And my students really helped me think about what I was learning and um, and just, you know, helped me believe that it it would matter that the way that I was learning from these communities, um, I could help, uh, you know, I could help my students sort of learn from them too. At some level, I felt both as a writer and as a teacher, like my job in this book was to be a pass through. My job was to sort of transmit to a reader or a student the same things that I had, or some version of what I had gotten to learn and experience in writing it. One of the things you say in the book is that it chronicles human wounds left by decades of deep cuts to local government. When we do a project that brings us in close contact with human beings who are hurting. And that can happen if you're in an archive reading about somebody who's been long dead, but you've just met them through their diary. And it's painful to go through their life with them and experience their problems with them as it is to be face to face with someone and listening to their story. There's a level of psychological support that we need to continue with deeply felt work. How did you um, find that for yourself? And how did that affect your writing process? It's so true. Um, You know, many of the people that I wrote about in this book have actual secondary trauma from their jobs. And I think it's, um, that's not an overstatement. It's not a kind of excess clinical diagnosis. I think they literally experience secondary trauma in their daily lives. Um, And in the Stockton chapter where I was really sitting with the problem of exposure to violence and the experience of witnessing, um, of witnessing violence and losing loved ones to violence and really just the aftermath of the crack epidemic, which was never resolved other than with the project of policing and mass incarceration, which yielded its own generation of destruction and broken families. So this the crack epidemic that just boiled over in Stockton and really just wounded a generation of children who grew up alongside that level of, of um violence and addiction and heavy, heavy policing, um, that 
problem in Stockton is still around. And I think the gun violence that I'm writing about in the current period, um, many advocates for very good reason believe is a legacy of that early 90s um, witnessing of, of violence. Um, in any event, the counselors and trauma, count, the trauma counselors, the therapists, the um, the teachers, the youth counselors and so forth that I write about in the Stockton chapter, they are frontline witnesses and um, and support systems for people who are dealing with the ongoing impacts of that kind of gun violence. Just extraordinary people. And I developed this habit, this is in the book at the end of the Stockton chapter, but I developed a habit of really asking people what they do to reset at the end of a day dealing with you know, one youth homicide after another and how they sort of go home at night and, you know, come back to work the next day. And, you know, I, I won't go into all their answers here, but that became a really important question to recognize, like people have got in these jobs, they have to develop practices to, um, to support themselves, um, their jobs in this way. Um, and, you know, I could have written this story of grief and trauma and healing in any of these four places. All of them have very high levels of violence, whether it's domestic violence or street violence. Um, and, uh, and the people who work on the front lines of poverty really have to be ready to help people with the rituals of grieving and healing. Um, that, uh, that can help individuals and families recover. Um, anyway, so that's all to say that they are the ones that are carrying that load. And I was constantly aware that whatever I was going through was literally trivial compared to what the load that they carry. And so I just want to like underscore that it was, it was extremely trivial. And so I always understood my own process as, you know, kind of secondary and um, to that. Having said that, there's no question that when you write about these kinds of problems, it is really hard sometimes. And I'm sitting at a desk talking to you where I will never forget sitting at this exact same desk one afternoon, having come, I was writing through the Stockton material and really trying to make sense of a bunch of interviews. And I came across a mother's grief diary. Um, she had uh, published online a grief diary relating to the um, to her son's death. And reading her and her daughter, the um, victim's um, sister, reading their reflections over time, you know, just years in the aftermath and his, of his absence and just um, that process, it, it was just devastating. And I'll never forget just sitting at this exact same table, just weeping. And I realized the doorbell rang and I realized that my daughter who had a piano teacher who came to the house, had arrived to give my daughter a piano lesson. And not only had I forgotten the piano lesson, I had totally forgotten to pick up my daughter at work at, her, at school. So here I am, you know, my daughter's like stuck at school. Um, and I go to the door wearing my pajamas with like mascara running down my face um, to greet the piano teacher. So yes, there were very hard days in writing this book. Um, but I felt like I owed a lot to that 
mom for what she had shared in her openness. And I certainly owed a lot to the dozens of incredible people I had interviewed in Stockton to really try to do justice to their story. Often the more important a story is, the more pressure there is to write it just right. How did you deal with your own writing blocks and we'll just call them hangups that every writer faces, but the more important the work is, the more blocks we may feel in trying to get the work done. So true. That is just so true. And the more that I admired the people I was writing about and sort of the more that I really internalized what they were up against and the kind of work they did anyway, the more true that became. It was like nothing I could write could ever live up to their work. And so there's a particular kind of imposter syndrome that I, you know, there's ordinary imposter syndrome that I've dealt with for years. That's its own thing, a different conversation. But there was a a different version of that that I experienced in this book of just um, being kind of, um, I don't know, being like mortified by the limitations of my own ability to sort of um, depict what I was experiencing. And all I can say is that the same tools apply to that problem, I think, that apply to any other you know, inhibitions or self-doubt in writing, which is that you just have to keep going and work through it. And I edited these drafts so many times, it's not even funny. I mean, part of the reason this book took a long time is because I, I wrote versions of the chapters, I would dump them, I would start over, I'd write a different narrative arc through them, I would rewrite every single sentence. Um, So, you know, all I could do to get through that was just keep working. And um, I don't know. And I think that's what writers have to do. They just have to keep working. Um, And again, just sitting at this desk where I actually wrote this book, you know, talking to you from this desk, there's little like reminders all over here to sort of help me kind of keep going. There's a giant one that I wrote in Sharpie, a sign that says, have you let yourself struggle today? And I thought, you know, that's, that's what it is. You just got to come to work every single day and keep struggling. A book is a long project. It's a long process. And in academia, there can be pressure to get work done quickly. And many projects need time to percolate, for lack of a better metaphor. They just need a lot of time to be with us from the point of idea to the point of inspiration to the point of when we feel like this needs to be told and then to gathering data, sending in a proposal and writing. Often when scholars talk about how long a book took to do, they mean from proposal to book in hand. When you think about how long this book actually took you to do, what is your realistic timeline when you look back from beginning to book in hand? How long was this book? You know, that question is actually hard for me to answer because, um, I mean, the total period of time where I was not publishing the kind of, um, typical stream of academic work that I kind of could have or should have been doing, I suppose, is um, is uh, about four and a half years. So that's the total period of time where I was kind of not doing other work. Um, but just as your question implies, that 
time period included, I mean, almost two years in which I was writing a totally different book, probably two different books. I had a completely different table of contents. It was much more organized around public policy issues. And um, and I was going to use a lot of different places as tiny little narrative um, depictions of these um, these public policy um, takeaways, if you will, um, related to the problems and related to the solutions. And that structure for the book stuck around for those first two years. I was doing tons of field research on the assumption that that's the book that I was writing. And at some point, I think when I'd kind of really fallen so in love with these four places that I just didn't want to do that anymore. I just wanted to sit with them on their own terms. I wanted to be able to really sit with and write about their urban history on its own, again, on its own terms, not nestled within some takeaway. And, um, and so I dumped that table of contents. I dumped a subsequent table of contents that was, um, was a kind of hybrid of the two. And I really surrendered to the idea that this book was going to be portraits of a few places in which each chapter would only be in that place. And that's what I went into contract on. Um, and the project, so, and, you know, that is when the, like this book and with this publisher and kind of this plan kind of locked in. And that total period is probably, um, uh, well, I guess probably at, at least three years. Um, and, uh, and in that period, I mean, the last three years, I've never, I've never worked harder in my life. I mean, those were not mellow years. Um, I have been just um, grinding in so many ways in order to get this book through so many edits. And one other thing I'll say about that is that because this is a narrative book where I really tried to push my skills in narrative nonfiction and really think about how to do that, think about how to tell stories about people, how to write portraits of places, all the rest. Um, I, uh, I really had to think about trajectory, like what, you know, what's the kind of arc of the story through each chapter and there too for each of them they went through a lot of changes you know there were the early plan that I had for the chapter on Detroit for instance was totally different than the housing story I ended up telling and that was true for all of these places I I um I there are multiple generations of of um uh, yeah, just a, the story arc for each chapter. Um, and all those revisions were important too. And the truth is, if I'd had the stamina for it, um, you know, I probably could have spent another year sort of really uh, cutting and um, and filtering down these stories. As it was, this book is about, what is it, 250 pages or so. Um, the amount of text I wrote for it is more like 500. So this is a radical um, downsizing. I, I constantly felt under pressure to make it shorter. Um because I just think that's the way information travels now. We're just overloaded with content. And I've become a much more impatient reader with long books. And I think that's probably not uncommon. And so I felt under so much pressure to keep this book shorter. So 250 is way longer than I'd hoped. I really hope to keep this book at 200. But, um, but in any event, 
here we are and the cutting room floor is very crowded. <laughs> you did create a website though. You did so much research and you have so much material and you mentioned in the book that there's a website with additional resources. Do you want to talk about how the website was born and, and what listeners might find on it? Uh-oh, that website doesn't is not yet finished. <laughs> so here we are. You caught me. Um, I uh, yes, I have so much content, and um, and so I've. The truth is that with the release of the book and a very very heavy teaching quarter in the spring, actually mounting that and you know creating it as an independent work product in some ways has just not um, you know is not finished yet. Um, but also the cutting room floor will come to life, I think, over the next couple of years as sort of spin-off little projects and pieces. You know, there were some things that I cut from the book, including whole cities, um, that, uh, you know, I will have to sort of sit with and report again and sort of, you know, um, battle through on their own terms as, an, as a new and freestanding work product. Um, but there's still something there that's important to me. I, I sort of cut it from the book because it didn't belong in the trajectory of this, this project. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot of material that I learned so much from, and I really would like to publish out and share. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of work ahead of me to sort of make use of, of this longer period of, of reporting. I appreciate your honesty about that and the glimpse into what happens next, because so many people end up with more, then can fit in the project. And some of the pain of cutting it is thinking it'll go to waste and and that what you're taking out is just as valuable as what stays, even though it may not exactly fit the goals of the narrative. Yeah. And a hot tip for your writer listeners, um, when you have a big, long project like this, as some of them have probably learned themselves, um, you've really got to be organized about that cutting room floor. I really wasn't early on. I just slashed drafts and dump them into these files that I would call dump files or holding tanks. I had two different file names for that. Um, And eventually I started to realize that I had to be more systematic about it. And um, toward the end of this project, as I did, you know, last round of cuts, I actually developed a cutting room floor document that has a table of contents. It's got, you know, linked headings that sorts these hundreds of pages of material. Um, And, you know, there's a, it's a mess document. There's all kinds of internal redundancy in it. Um, But, uh, but it allowed me to put it all in one place so that it's searchable. And um, that's really important because over a long project like this, there's all kinds of things that I drafted early on. I don't even remember I wrote them, you know, they're just like, spilled milk in the past it's easy to just forget what where you've been and all the little things that you sort of battled through to draft um and so yeah so being orderly about that um has been important to me and saving it sometimes at writing conferences they have this phrase they use called kill your darlings and so i left a conference like that and i went home and i literally deleted things I didn't put them in a separate file. I didn't preserve them for future use. I deleted them. 
Yeah, I think that phrase is really important. I mean, I kind of it makes me sad because it's got killing and babies in it, but it is. But it's so it's the principle of it is exactly right. And the truth is that creating a cutting room floor dock, whatever whatever you call it, dump or holding tank or cutting room floor, whatever, it gives you license to make those cuts because the truth is, I was attached to things, and you know, there's a lot of details about these places that I collected very lovingly, you know, often with librarians help and others who sort of help me find and sort of rummage around in these urban histories and really gather all these gems from their stories. And I was attached to those things. And I also felt bound to my interviews too, of these amazing people. And I want their name in the book and here I am cutting them. They put their time into me. You know, I felt a lot of guilt and just regret around a lot of those cuts. Some of them felt really personal and just unfortunate. And so creating this adjacent file um, actually helped me let go. It gave me a license to say like, just not yet. You know, I'm not gonna use that right now, um, but I'm not gonna throw it in the garbage either. And some of those details will probably never see the light of day. Um, but uh, But others I think have a better chance of actually surfacing somewhere else. Um, because I, uh, you know, because I tried to become more systematic about the way I did those kinds of big cuts. And if you save the work, you can take a little distance from it and come back to it and you'll have fresh ideas. So for listeners, please don't delete when they say kill your darlings, (laughs) they don't, they don't mean destroy them literally. <laughs> I mean, they don't belong in this particular work. Exactly, exactly. And one of my mentors, Ian Haney Lopez, who's an incredible law professor at UC Berkeley and really has had a transformative effect on my work over years, um, early on in my career said, don't save things, you know, don't like put something in some pocket because it's like going to be novel later and you don't want to sort of overspend your big insights um, right off the bat. And I think that advice was also true that you want your best work every time. So, you know, you constantly want to be editing toward the most important things um, and not kind of saving, um, you know, jewels that you want under their own byline or something. So I think he's totally right about that. Um, And having said that, it's that advice has got to coexist in some kind of, you know, equilibrium with the imperative to keep things shorter. And sometimes there are just nestled ideas, you know, we could meanly call them tangents, but I think as a writer, they often feel like nested ideas that, you know, you just have to ask, like, can the, can the word count bear it? You know, can the reader bear it? And working with a trade press editor was really healthy for me. Ben Lonan was my editor at Simon & Schuster, just an extraordinary line editor. And, you know, he read my work on paper and he would just have these giant X's, like a whole page has got to go. And, you know, it was always sad, just like, oh my God, look at that beautiful detail. And here's this person who I'm writing about who's important. And, um, But, you know, he read it as a reader where if you have that many people, that many names coming and going from a manuscript, like it wears you out as a reader. It's like all these anonymous people sort of coming and going. Um, And so in any event, yeah, don't don't save your best work. But on the other hand, you know, there are 
ideas that just have to be cut in in full. And maybe you can use them later. You told us, uh, listeners, that you gave us portraits of a number of the people that you met. Towards the end of the book, you, you introduce us to a woman who's overcome a number of hardships and sometimes been completely felled by them. She's a single mother. She's faced depression. Um, and we meet her in the very, very final uh, bit of the book. Could you give us her portrait? Yeah, that's um, the epilogue is written about a really extraordinary woman named Joanne Pena, who I met in Lawrence, Massachusetts. At the time that I first met Joanne, she was working for the city of Lawrence, and she was in a really um, in a really good place, a sort of redemptive place after a very long and very hard road through, as you said, being a single mom and um, being temporarily homeless and really uh, just struggling with the larger um, the larger trauma and and load of, of a difficult childhood um, uh, with a mom who had been displaced from the Dominican Republic and had really um, struggled as a mostly single mom herself um, and so at the time that I met Joanne she had gotten this amazing job in the city um, and uh and she she's an incredible survivor and the thing that's special about joanne too is that like many people in this book she just has a way of reflecting on her own journey that is um is just so open and thoughtful and deep you know there's so many moments sitting with joanne where i just thought oh my god like this is just a brilliant woman who you know, is teaching me about, I don't know, about materialism and, you know, sort of the, what, what life is about and these sort of deeper, you know, deeper questions. In any event, um, Joanne is, you know, on her own terms is an extraordinary story. Um, but, uh, but, you know, she is held in the book and I struggled so much. She's an example of, you know, her story I put in, in all these different positions. I almost cut it entirely from the book and eventually, um, settled on giving her the last word in the epilogue because she's so symbolic to me of what a gateway city can do. And gateway city is this um, phrase that I use in the introduction. It actually comes from Massachusetts public policy. And it comes from the idea that there have always been cities that were first homes to new immigrants in the country. And Massachusetts used it for its old industrial mill towns as they took in sort of all of Europe and the Middle East and, you know, these giant regions of the country in the early 20th century, of the world, sorry, in the early 20th century and sort of made them American, sort of transitioned them into um uh, a larger immigrant national identity. Um, and uh, Lawrence's modern story of drawing in Central America and South America and the larger, um, you know, this other, and the Caribbean, most importantly, um, is really an echo of this function that Lawrence has always had. Anyway, so Gateway City, I use in the introduction in the immigrant sense, but also in this aspirational sense that very low-income places have to give people a path out of poverty and sometimes a path out of town because otherwise they're just poverty traps. And we have to just be honest about how 
damaging a poverty trap can be. I mean, it can literally break people. They can, you know, result in, in intense loss and grief um, and hardship for people. And so Gateway City to me became the kind of goal of all of this. Like, how do you take these places of citywide poverty and turn them into gateway cities that give people, as the book says, like choices and chances? Um, so Joanne's backstory is just this magnificent window into Lawrence functioning as a gateway city that way, a kind of 21st century gateway city in which a chain of people just cared about her. I mean, at some level, like it's as basic as that. There's a chain of people from, you know, the cop to a social worker to a donut store that hired her to a, um, a um, shelter for immigrant for sorry for um, unhoused mothers on and on there's this this community of people who looked out for her and looked out for her son when he entered the lawrence public school system um and therefore like in order to care for him as a student like really started to look out for his mom and this network of people is how she ended up in that better place when i met her with this good job and to me, she, when I went back to Joanne with the manuscript, you know, finally positioned as the epilogue, it turned out that she had left Lawrence, that she had moved and she's living elsewhere. Um, and at first I was bummed because the truth is it was like, oh no, like, you know, she, she, you know, she did, you know, she left town. Um, and, uh, but the truth is it was the ultimate gateway store, gateway city story. You know, she didn't need to work in and for Lawrence for her own, you know, for her longer term. Like she came to Lawrence for a period of healing and recovery and Lawrence did exactly what it needed to do at that point. And it allowed her the alternative to leave. And now she lives outside of Boston and is, um, is uh, doing better. So I, I loved giving her the last word, both because of just her inherent wisdom as a person, um, but also for the symbolic value of, of learning from somebody who's been through what she's been through and, and watching a city, a heavily, heavily stigmatized city like Lawrence, really look out for a vulnerable person just as all of our communities have to do. Thank you so much for being here today, Michelle Wild Anderson, and telling us about your work to create the book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.